I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello and welcome to Cinematic Universe, the podcast that does for comic book movies what Fantastic Four did for Chris Evans' career. I'm Joe Cunningham and joining me to help make sense of the comics behind the movies are... Seth Patrick and James Hunt. We'll discuss the latest comic book movie and TV news before diving into our spoiler-filled discussion of Tim Story's 2005 movie Fantastic Four. But before any of that, I'm going to ask Seven James to explain to me a comic book concept... As a movie fan, I just don't understand. And this week, you guys, I've been reading about... There's this guy called Joss Whedon. And (laughs) buried amongst the news of Buffy 20th anniversary and reunions and all that kind of exciting stuff, was this little detail that he's probably going to write and direct a Batgirl movie. Except it's not the Batgirl that I'm familiar with from animated shows and... Hey, Batman and Robin and Oracle and games. It's a post-New 52 Batgirl who I know nothing about. So what's the current status quo of Batgirl and what Batgirl... What is what is the Batgirl that Joss Whedon is going to adapt? This is a very um, good question for Seb because I have no <laughs> clue. <laughs> no, I mean, actually, the I mean, I think maybe it's been a bit misleading by just calling it New 52 Batgirl because that is the Batgirl that you know about. Um, the the Bat, okay. Batgirl in current continuity is Barbara Gordon. Okay. Um, she is <laughs> Commissioner Gordon's daughter. Uh, she is inspired to become Batgirl, uh, after, you know, by Batman, go off her own back, becomes Batgirl. Um, and, uh, yeah, I think basically that where there's confusion is that uh, a little-known comic you may have heard of from the 1980s called The Killing Joke uh, featured a scene in which Barbara, who was already pretty much retired by that point, was shot and paralysed by the Joker. Um, And after that, it was actually, I think, in the pages of Suicide Squad, uh, she became Oracle. And, like, Mm. I mean, there was a pretty... God, it must be at least 20 years, really, where she was Oracle in the DC Universe. And to a lot of people, you know, the sort of the status quo that they had grown up with was Barbara Gordon used to be Batgirl and now she's Oracle. And arguably, like, pretty much, every, you know, most of the best stories about her were with her as Oracle, not as Batgirl. Now, there, had, there were other Batgirls after her. There was Cassandra Kane, who's a very popular character, um, mm. who's now orphan in current Batman continuity because uh, Barbara Gordon is Batgirl again. <clears throat> um, and Stephanie Brown, who was originally a vigilante called Spoiler, and she was Robin's girlfriend, Tim Drake, Robin's girlfriend for a while. She was very briefly Robin, and she became Batgirl after Cassandra Kane. But when they did the New 52 reboot, um, Barbara was Batgirl again, and in in like a very kind of classic setup, really, in the sense of, you know, um, 
it was to begin with, it was unclear as to whether she had always been Batgirl or if the Oracle thing had still happened. Uh, and then I think I, I didn't read it much past the first couple of issues, but it, it became apparent that, you know, the paralysis and everything had still happened, but she'd recovered from it and she'd gone back to being Batgirl. Um, so that's really the, the you know, the, the new 52 version of Batgirl is basically she had had that injury. She had been Oracle for a while and she went back to being Batgirl. Now, she did also recently get a kind of um, a, a sort of reboot or revamp, but it was kind of a stylistic revamp rather than a um, a continuity reset. Um, mm. So it was part of um, DC's kind of mini relaunch that they called DCU YOU, where they were sort of trying to. They were doing what I, there was. There were good books, but they, in terms of how they presented it, it kind of felt like a token effort to appeal to a slightly more diverse audience. I mean, it all, good stuff, it all got reversed anyway, though, didn't it? Exactly. This is the thing. It, it a lot of it didn't sell very well, and a lot of it didn't last very long. And actually, they've. They've made a better fist of it with some of the stuff that they've done in Rebirth because they've just kind of got on with it and they've had more of a variety of things. Does, um, but does as, that kind of mean they've done it without going, hey, look at us doing it? So, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, um, you know, I mean, a good example would be like, you know, what they've done with the Young Animal books where, you know, they are they are kind of hived off and they, are, they do draw attention to the fact that they're unusual, but... You know, it, it's done in a way that makes more sense. I think, think the thing with DCU was that it sort of it alienated um, kind of your classic arsehole comics readership a bit too much because they kind of felt, oh, this is impinging on the comics that we want to read about the same old, you know, uh, characters. Whereas now I think I think DC have hit a point where they've realised that, that the two can coexist. Um, but anyway, I mean, the, the Batgirl revamp came out of that and was, pro- was probably the most successful aspect of it. And, and that revamp has kind of continued where they sort of... I, I don't know if they actually used any kind of continuity trick to de-age her, but she was kind of back at college and moved to a town called Burnside and sort of yeah. you know, got a new costume that was a bit, you know, more up to date and... Um, you know, the it was um, the team was um, Cameron Stewart and Brendan Fletcher writing it, and Babs Tarr drawing it. So it was a kind of very, very trendy and and cool uh, creative team, and had had that quite cartoony, but um, that that style that you know, if you look at, at Marvel at things like uh, Squirrel Girl and America and stuff like that, you know, it's that. Um, I don't want to use the phrase Tumblr appealing because that's that really reduces it, and that's that's not just what these books are all about. But you know, um, and it, it it did a, it did a reasonably successful job of appealing to that audience, although it did also have um, a bit of controversy over some unintentional transphobia. <laughs> do you um, <laughs> do you want to circle this background to Joss Whedon? <laughs> anyway, yeah, but uh, Joe asked me to explain Batgirl. I've just explained Batgirl. <laughs> Um, I think a good way to to circle this back to Joss Whedon is to for me to ask what which of that bit of post New Fifty Two Batgirl seems to you like the stuff that they're going to adapt? Is it going to be the Gail Simone relaunch, or is it going to be this Batgirl at Burnside stuff that was? I, I get the impression that it's that it's the Gail Simone style stuff, which is basically classic style Batgirl in the present day sort of thing. Right. Um, okay. That's that's the impression that I get. I mean, that might just be that all of the news stories about it illustrated it with pictures from that era, um, but. I don't know that the newer Batgirl. While I think you know it has been, it, it was a pretty good book. Um, 
I don't know if it's kind of had the cultural resonance. Because um, the thing about Batgirl is, like, you know, Batgirl is a character that people recognise. I mean, you know, tracing her origins all the way back, she debuted in the TV series. Yes. If you don't, if you don't count the Betty Kane version of Batgirl that predates Barbara <laughs> Gordon, that's Bat-Girl. Um, but, you know, Barbara Gordon Batgirl was created for the 60s TV show. Uh, and... Um, Caused uproar at the time, I'm told, <laughs> amongst Batman fans. That doesn't well, they, you know. Please challenge. So, but the point is, because of that, she's a character that people will recognise in that classic form. Um, also, like you know, Barbara Gordon is a great character, and and kind of you know, um, uh, I think is is a character that's worth focusing. I would actually just like to what I did want to get in because it's not a comic that I'm I'll probably get a chance to recommend on the podcast for a while. Um, Batgirl Year One um, is a comic from about ten years or so ago. That sort of it's essentially it's it's an origin story for Barbara Gordon as Batgirl. Uh, I think it's written by Chuck Dixon. It's drawn by Marcos Martin. So James, that might interest you. <laughs> um, and like it's just a fantastic, really enjoyable series. Um, so that's and worth do- a look if you want to know more about why Batgirl is any good. <laughs> and I'll do what Amon would do if he was on the podcast again, which is to recommend the two-episode arc of Batman the Animated Series that that introduces Batgirl, and it's really fun. <laughs> <laughs> um, but this this Joss Whedon movie sounds like it's going to be part of the DCEU, um, but maybe not, like, intric- intricately tied into it. Um, Which is that sounds like place for it. <laughs> yeah, that, that sounds like maybe the approach that the DCEU could take now and just go... All right, we're gonna do movies set in these set in this big universe, but they're about as connected as Daredevil is to Spider Man or Agents of Shield. They're in the same universe. We'll say they're in the same universe, but let's ca- let's carry on. You know, maybe having, you can do like having a little... cake and eating it. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> that's it's worked for Hollywood for many a decade. I'm sure. <laughs> Can I like? Can I be a bit? Can I be a bit cynical about this announcement and say I don't think it's going to happen? Yeah, Why? I mean, my my first thought was it, this is going to be the the DC one to add to our Gambit and Venom list. But go on, James. <laughs> right, just because like Joss Whedon's sensibilities seem so at odds with everything they've done with the DC movies so far. I just I, given that they tried to make a Wonder Woman movie with him and rejected it for being essentially too progressive. I can't yeah. imagine them giving an icon like Batgirl to him and saying here do what you want and getting something but, that they're happy with but this is also Joss Whedon who now has the cultural cachet of oh, yeah, being yeah. the guy who did Avengers which is very different what you're talking about is Joss Whedon <laughs> trying to do Wonder Woman back when his biggest like he was known for failed projects well, was his, he, to be fair he was known for Buffy and Angel which were like massive <laughs> I mean, yeah, he he was he was responsible for what's arguably the most successful female superhero property of all time. Yeah, but there was definitely a point at which Joss Whedon was getting that reputation that like this thing is really good. It's not going to last. This this thing is really interesting, but it but it has flaws. <laughs> that became Joss Whedon's thing to the point that when he got hired for the Avengers, it literally blew my mind. I was like, well, it's probably not going to happen then. <laughs> well, Cause, I cause mean, Joss Whedon got hired on it. I'm not saying that reputation has gone away because as soon as he was announced on Batgirl, I was like, oh, that would be really good, but it's not going to happen. <laughs> so we'll um, see. 
I hope yeah, it does, we'll wait and but see. I don't think we'll it will. We'll add it to the list. Yeah. But, I mean, DC do seem to have so many of these ideas out there. We did, I mean, I remember hearing uh, earlier on in the um, in the Marvel universe kind of that they were taking pitches for movies pretty consistently that they you know they they invited filmmakers in to say do you have an idea tell us about it i think the star wars movies did the same thing because Mm -hmm. there was a rumor of a Zack snyder like seven samurai style um jedi movie that was in the works (laughs) at one point and christ i do wonder whether that marvel just kept all theirs quiet and only announce things when they were happening, whereas DC just talks about anything that they're tentatively putting into yeah, development I mean, and lets it out there. <laughs> All saying that makes me think is that Star Wars is the best place for Zack Snyder. Because it, <laughs> it keeps me away from him, and it keeps him away from anything that I like. So Don't reveal to the listeners that they're listening <laughs> to a nerd podcast when none of the nerds like Star Wars, James. <laughs> <laughs> They'll all turn off. <laughs> Star Trek, though. Give yep. us some of that, right? Yep. Jason Isaacs. It's going to be great. Can't wait. Can't wait. Come for that on our Star Trek spin-off podcast 2018. <laughs> I would I would genuinely do that. Yeah. Well, Patreon. <laughs> True. True enough. Um, okay. Uh, well, that was um, Joss Whedon and Batgirl. Um, we'll move on now to the comic movie and TV news. And our first couple of items um, are going to seem slightly out of date because, annoyingly, um, we have two trailers, one of which debuted on the day we put our last podcast out and the other one de- debuted the day after. Um because isn't that always the way? Um, but you guys know that we still have things to say about Spider-Man and Justice League. Um, so let's start off with Spider-Man. Um, and Seb, you were worried that the Wonder Woman trailer had showed us the entire movie. <laughs> Man alive, this Spider-Man trailer has spoilers. Like big old action set piece spoilers. <sighs> yeah... I'm so struggling to see what they were thinking there. I mean, I did enjoy it as a trailer, and it you know it gave me lots of nice Spider-Man feelings. Um, but yeah, I mean, you've got to hope that there's a hell of a lot more going on in the like that. That's all first act stuff, and that, that a lot more goes on later. <laughs> because if it's not, then yeah, here's here's my problem. Um, I am fairly sure everything in the trailer with him in the proto suit, um, and I thought this after the first trailer, especially in the second trailer where we literally have the scene where Tony Stark says, I'm going to take the suit back off you, and he says, oh no, don't, and then there's a bunch of clips of him not in the suit. Hmm. All of that's going to be third act stuff, isn't it? Yes. All of that stuff's third act stuff. It it does seem that way. And when trailers give you the third act stuff, sometimes that's fine, but to actually highlight these are the bits that is third act. I mean, if you if you compare this with, and I know you obviously you know you've been critical of the trailers um, for Guardians too. Um, the more recent but, ones have been good. Yeah, and you know this is a film that's that's about to come out this month. I still don't know what the plot of that film is, and it was kind of the same with the first one, other than you know we knew that the Infinity Stone was going to be a MacGuffin, but apart from that, and and with Guardians too, it's like. You know, I have no idea how or why um, 
Nebula and uh, Yondu joined them. I, you know, other than the stuff with Kurt Russell, like I've no idea what the driving plot beat of that film is. It's just we've seen a bunch of cool stuff from it and got a sense of the tone of it. And yeah, when when you're doing Spider-Man and when you're doing Spider-Man and Iron Man in a film together, just show us cool stuff. Don't give us context. I mean, apparently Iron Man's not even in it that much and they've kind of blown... Well, what, I mean, I, didn't like, we say after the first trailer that it was likely that most of his footage from the film was in that trailer? Yeah. And it seems even more so with this one. <laughs> Do you think we've got all of our Captain America out of the way? Yeah, yeah. Because that, that was pretty cool. I liked that. It was fun. <laughs> Again, though, like hold something back for the film, please. Like, yeah. yeah. The little cameos like that, that's what I live for. Like, Don't put them in the trailer. Well, think I back w- to um, Thor 2, when there was no inkling that Chris Evans was going to... Imagine if they'd put that one shot of Chris Evans in Thor 2 in the trailers. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, I, I think the thing to look forward to about... Spider-Man Homecoming, though, is hopefully the relationships with the other kids and the fun high school stuff and that, you know... Yeah, the, I mean, the, this the is... Spidey stuff. We kind of know what we're going to get with the Spider-Man stuff in a Spider-Man movie. So it's all the stuff that comes around it that's probably going to be whether it makes it a good film or not. Yeah, I was going to say, like, we've seen a lot of Spider-Man stuff. We haven't seen quite as much Peter Parker stuff, and maybe that's... We're... That's still don't know who Zendaya the... is. Yeah, for example, yeah. quote unquote, and, don't know. And and as much as <laughs> and I was actually just rewatching um, Summer Civil War um, last night and the night before. It was one of those stick it on the telly because we're all sitting around in the living room and <laughs> something to put on in the background kind of things. And I mean, I, I do love the Spider Man stuff in the airport scene, but what got us really excited watching civil war the first time was that peter parker scene because it you know it wasn't yeah. so much that they'd nailed spider-man in costume because we've had other films that have done that um it was wow this is a peter parker that i can't wait to see more of him being peter parker and living his peter parker life and you know being yeah. that character that we love so much so hopefully yeah. that is something that will carry through absolutely um uh, and also, did you did you see, this is, I, I mean, the internet is a force for good and bad, but this is one of the reasons I love the internet, <laughs> that, that nerds have found a fun, a, there's, a, there's a shot in the trailer where there is a car license plate that reads SM20563, and apparently the first appearance of Vulture was in The Amazing Spider-Man issue 2, published in May 1963. Um <laughs> Good job, internet, and good job, production department on Spider-Man Homecoming. <laughs> that's the kind of stuff that us nerds lap up. That's, that's um, been the other thing to, to touch on from the trailer, actually, is obviously we get a bit more of Michael Keaton. And it's like, is there anyone crossing their fingers more than us that Michael Keaton turns out to be an absolutely awesome villain in this film? Um, <laughs> Michael I'm Keaton's not... agent? <laughs> Just, you know, I mean, well, just, you know, after the love we've expressed for him in, in Batman and his, him not getting the breaks in, in the past, um, if if he turns out to be a great comic book movie villain, then... I don't know. I'm not sure. I'm not sure I buy him as like some kind of Birdman. Just seemed weird. <laughs> um, I'll be honest. It's the one thing that I'm still not convinced about. I haven't seen... I, they, they haven't shown us a whole amount of Vulture, but what we have seen, I, I don't like the character design or anything like that. So it's a bit like it's a bit overly techy. Like I, yeah. I quite enjoy the simple villain 
design. But this is, I think this is going to be a very techie, sciencey Spider-Man oh, yeah, movie. Yeah, for sure. Spider-Man goes to a special spy- science school, as we discovered from that jacket <laughs> that he's wearing in the <laughs> in the poster. And um, Spider-Man obviously has access to Tony Stark tech, and Tinkerer is the Tinkerer and Shocker are the two villains that are alongside Vulture. So there's techie stuff there as well. Mm-hmm. Um, it's going to be the Big Hero Six of live action <laughs> movies. <laughs> um, as former podcast Michael Leader described uh, Big Hero 6 to me, it's one big movie of yay science. Uh, so <laughs> maybe Spider-Man can be that as well. Um, should we talk about some Justice League? Yeah, because I think we all had quite different opinions on this, didn't we? I don't know. I didn't, I didn't see your opinions. Yeah, I'm only vaguely um, remembering. I didn't like it. I did. I thought it was fucking great. I thought it was really (laughs) like the thing I will forgive any film. Like it doesn't matter how stupid or like badly plotted it is. If I'm laughing, I will be like, that was a great film. And that whole trailer made me laugh. Like, do you not char- that, like that proper character comedy? All of the jokes in it. Though. I mean, that's my concern: is that I've got excited for Zack Snyder films before, only for the trailers to not reflect the actual movies. So, yeah, well, exactly. Like, every single I mean, Zack yeah, every every single Zack Snyder thing. So, fair enough. But at the same time, like those were character jokes that properly made me laugh. So, if Although... the film is anything like the trailer, I'll be happy. I, I mean, I, I hate, you know, the thing of, you know, I, I would have done this differently school of criticism. <laughs> when you've got what's your superpower and like, was I the only person expecting that that line was going to be I'm Batman? Surely that's a better line than I'm rich. Mm-hmm. That's been that line was pretty controversial with nerds, I hear. Either super, uh, the, the Batman's power being rich is kind of like an assholey capitalist kind of thing. <laughs> well, well, it is, but he's... <laughs> yeah. he's that's, but the, if you know Batman... Especially in... Like, actually, it's a believable line for this Batman in this universe. It well, absolutely yes. is in keeping with the character in that sense. Also, to be that's fair... That's true, but isn't, isn't the aspirational view of Batman that his superpower is that he can think a way around anything? And that, yes, his money helps, um, but... You know, like, I, 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 if, if, if the thing is the a way different I, version of Batman, yeah, but the, but that's not the Batman that was in Batman v Superman. <laughs> the thing yeah, is, like so the way fair. the way I read that line is that he was joking, like yeah, of course, yeah. 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 So fair enough. Like he's not going to say oh, I'm really smart or like I'm you know <laughs> yeah. good at fighting. He's going to say oh, I'm rich because that's funny. I know. And okay, like, so- he, the thing about Batman is he like for me at least he works best when he's having fun, even though he doesn't look like he is. Hmm. Like that's, okay, so a, James, that's a trait what, I enjoy. What were you laughing at in this trailer? Mainly Aquaman. <laughs> and like <laughs> I was, it was I funny. Was, or was it like I thought it was like awkward cringe comedy? Like your your uncle trying to be cool? No, because like that's it. Just feels like there's no line between Jason Momoa and Aquaman. Right. <laughs> like that. All the stuff Aquaman was saying, I was just like, yeah, that's Jason Momoa and just talking. And that's what I enjoy. Like, the, you know, just like a bat. I dig it. Like, that's funny. What's not <laughs> funny about that? I, I may be being overly critical because it wasn't the jokes or any of the dialogue or any of the hints at plot that I didn't like the luck of. I mean, because 
I don't know about Steppenwolf and Parademons and Apocalypse other than the, you know, the brief insights that you guys have given me on the podcast. So I can't get excited or skeptical about any of that stuff. It's just this movie looked... I was tired of the visuals in a two-minute trailer. Looking at that colour scheme for potentially up to two and a half hours is already filling me with a sense of existential dread. Like, and Cyborg CG is... Oh, uh, my oh, It's unfinished, goodness. though. Come on, it's months it, out. If it's unfinished, don't show don't that much of him in the, in the trailer. trailer. Jesus wept. It's horrible. It looks like it is. It is a bit Transformers esque, isn't it? It's Which Transformers. Is I great. just, I, I'm. If he looks like that in the comics, fine. But show a bit more of his human side if he's a cyborg. <laughs> I, I mean, it's unless you're going for some dark Robocop esque satire, which I don't think they are. Um, that <laughs> character design looks garbage to me. And yeah, just the. Just the big battle scenes and the just everywhere they went looked either grey or brown and grey. Um, and you know I can I can take that up to a point from a film like Les Mis, but Batman Superman in a movie and again, again, Is Superman in this movie. Yes, I didn't see him in the trailer. <laughs> That's true. He's not in the trailer. Did you see the person who mocked up the character it. poster with uh, <laughs> with him just <laughs> yeah. under the ground? <laughs> there it's he is. Of, it's, it's weird if they're going to play this thing of pretending that he's not in it when we all <laughs> Especially know that he is. Because they put him in the very first teaser images for it. Like, when they were first teasing Justice League, he was in the artwork. And it was like, yeah. oh, they're not even going to pretend he's not in it then. And then since that, they've reined it back and he's now missing from everything. Is do you think the reason is that he's going to have the super mullet and they're holding back showing us it? Because if he's going to have the super mullet and that black costume with the silver shield, I will forgive so much <laughs> of the last two films. I think the reason I'll is I forgive it even more so if he comes back wearing a visor. I think it's because they're going to hold him back until the third act, and he's going to come back with a lot of Jesus imagery. Is he? Is he going to be a villain? I. Part of me wonders that if he'll come back evil. I, I think he. I think he is going to be. Yeah, I think he's going to have been revived by some kind of apocalyptian um, <laughs> interference or technology or whatever. Well, surely and they're going to fight him for in the in, towards the end of the film. And if they if they use a Lazarus chamber, I'll come back insane anyway, won't he? So hmm. they should do that. Well, the the hint that I got from the from the shots in the trailer was that this is going to be a kind of the Justice League uniting the like three armies of Earth, like humans, Atlanteans, and wherever Wonder Woman's from. Um, uh, and Amazonians. That, yeah, um, that's it. And that, or or that either those that's what's happening now, or that that was what was happening like way in Earth's history. Um, that those three armies united to bite to. I mean, I got a Lord of the Ringsy vibe. You can't not when you have that big epic battle imagery with like lava in the background and all that kind of stuff um so whether that's like a history lesson and it's that's and that's how batman finds out about the existence of the oh no he's got the flash drive hasn't he he already knows about them and he's got their logos <laughs> got that bit he's designed their I logos know. i don't know i think I the important thing though is i don't think i care 
it's likely that we're going to see Superman fight the other members of the Justice League. And if there's one thing that we needed to see in these movies, it's Superman fighting Batman for a bit longer. <laughs> just, I, I'm just. I can't. So I can't believe to see actual, actual, good Superman again. You I know, like a, I... a Superman who is wholesome, and you want, you know, you want who you want to like. Because Man of Steel gave us such a tough time with it, and Batman v Superman had none of it. And so if he comes back and he's yeah, evil Batman again... Batman v Superman had a bit of it. Batman v Superman had more of it than Man of Steel, but we've had that. It had a montage, Seb. That was it. <laughs> yeah. It had a montage. But it was, that, was, that was more than Man of Steel. I really, like, I really can't believe that out of everyone, I'm the one who's most optimistic about Justice League, because I hate everything. <laughs> but and I'm sitting here going like, oh, being, probably be, it'll probably be good. You're being contrary. <laughs> and you I just, I'm, not, I'm genuinely like, a lot more than I did as well. That's yeah. That's the I thing. just like I'm excited for almost every and and this is the thing. I was the one guy who was defending Zack Snyder against you two, like in our Watchmen episode and stuff like that. <laughs> Except now I'm literally at the point where I think I I think I'm looking forward to any DC movie that doesn't have his name on it. I don't think it's like I'm sure you know like there are people online who'd be like, oh, you just hate DC. We can't. Like, oh, we heard you just saying nice things about Spider Man. You've got nothing to say nice about Justice League. I think it's just Zack Snyder in this universe at this point. I I just can't anymore. I just Sorry, we've really got, can't. We've got one more Zack Snyder DC film to watch, and then <laughs> then it's all over. Well, one yeah. plus this one. Let's see. I'm about as sure as that about that as you are about Joss Whedon directing Batgirl. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I think though the, the main thing is really just there is. I mean, we I know we've spent a while doing it, and you know it is what our kind of stock in trade is. But there feels like so little point actually talking about the trailer for a Zack Snyder film because. I've said this before, but I am still bitter about that first Man of Steel trailer with the music from Lord of the Rings in it that (laughs) looked like it was promising me everything I could want from a Superman film. And Mm. look what we got instead. I still get emotional when I hear that bit of music. (laughs) While watching Lord of the Rings. (laughs) Yeah, I get emotional when I hear any piece of Lord of the Rings music. Uh, Our Lord of the Rings spin-off podcast coming 2019. Uh, I, I won't be on to complete Yeah, just to complete the nerd things that we don't like. I'm not a big Lord of the Rings. I, I've not oh, even. Seb, I've not seen out. any of the films or read oh. the books past the first like five pages. Because I, I find it the really extended boring. Editions. I've watched the extended editions back to back on at least three or four occasions, and I'm planning another one in for this year. Me and my <laughs> friend, who was my best man at my wedding, do it every two or three years. Sit down, fourteen hours, smash them out. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. Um, okay. Um, well, we'll move on to our final piece of news now, which is... Oh, I wanted to introduce this with um, a little impression. So, uh, how about this? New Warriors, come out to play, yay! <laughs> <laughs> Can you dig it? Yeah, definitely. <laughs> I enjoyed that far more than any of our listeners did. Um, <laughs> There is a new I don't Warriors. The reference. Oh, Seb. Oh, Seb. It's the the Warriors. The Warriors. The move. The, the the action movie. The Warriors. No. no? Okay. It's good. Seb. We're losing no points all over the shop tonight. <laughs> Go. Watch. It's on Netflix. Seb. Go watch it, and then afterwards I will ask good. you whether whether you can dig it. 
and um, I'm sure your answer will be yes. Um, yes, there has been a new Warriors series ordered by Freeform. It's going straight to series. Uh, Freeform is the channel that used to be known as ABC Family, um, and it uh, last year ordered the Cloak and Dagger TV series, which is due late next year, I think. So they're not they're not in any rush with this. Um, the exciting thing about this new Warriors series is that it is going to be headlined by Squirrel Girl, who, as far as I know, has nothing to do with the new Warriors in the comics, but they've decided that this is the vehicle that they're going to introduce her to live action through and... Sorry, I was going to say, to be fair, like, that will change before the film, before the TV series starts, you can guarantee it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, that, that, that seems like a safe bet. Um... We all love Squirrel Girl, right? It's one of the mm-hmm. best comics that Marvel's been publishing for like the last two or three years at this point. Yep. Yep. <laughs> Are you excited for a Squirrel Girl New Warriors <laughs> TV series? Uh, nope. I mean, like Why not? Uh, The thing is, okay, I don't feel like they will do justice to the character and the setup just based on what i've seen from marvel's previous tv output like this feels like something that dc would do well on tv but that marvel hasn't yet okay but the free we haven't seen anything of their freeform stuff and their netflix stuff and abc stuff is sufficiently different from each other that this could be just as different and this is going to be a flat-out comedy and they've hired um kevin beagle who works on Cougar Town, in fact created Cougar Town, and then Enlisted, which Enlisted didn't stick around for very long, but was kind of widely loved by everyone who did watch it and critically adored as well. And Kevin Beagle posted a picture on Twitter today with his daughter sending her off to school, packing her off with some Squirrel Girl comics in her backpack. Um, (laughs) Not New Warriors, Squirrel Girl. I I think my issue with it would be that why I find Squirrel Girl so enjoyable and so funny is not anything to do with Squirrel Girl fundamentally as a character or as a concept. Squirrel Girl is a great comic because Ryan North and Erica Henderson are great. Like, Ryan North is just someone who his sense of humour and general interests align so perfectly with me and, like, his frame of reference and everything that, like pretty much every joke that Ryan North makes I find funny and Erica Henderson is supremely funny as a cartooning storyteller and like you know getting jokes out of the art she's brilliant at that so it's a book that I love because of the people who do it and if they were doing a comic about a completely different character and doing it in the same way that they did Squirrel Girl I would probably love that as well so if you're taking Squirrel Girl and putting her in a TV series with a different creative team, it's not necessarily going to have the reasons why I love the comic so much. Yeah. So I'm saying they should get Ryan North in to write the TV show, essentially. <laughs> I mean, Squirrel Girl... It's a terrible decision. Like, Squirrel Girl works. Should we say Squirrel Girl or should we say Squirrel Girl like Americans? No, we should say yeah, Squirrel I, Girl. I didn't... I didn't realise until Koi Boy and Chipmunk Hunk turned up that Squirrel Girl <laughs> was supposed to rhyme. Yeah. And then I, I remarked on this on Twitter that it turns out that she rhymes in American and it was mm. then pointed out to me that she rhymes in Scottish as well yes. because she's Squirrel Girl. <laughs> in fact, did, I mean, did Al Kennedy just, not explain that to us on our it podcast? It probably was, Al. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I know we probably should do it, but I just can't. 
No, we shouldn't do it. We <laughs> it's Squirrel their fault girl. for not Squirrel girl. not creating a character who rhymes in every accent. <laughs> <laughs> it's like an episode of Only Connect. That's pretty niche. Uh, what I was going to say is, <laughs> what I was going to say is, like the the thing that makes Squirrel Girl work is that it's like the juxtaposition of this like crazy low powered character having fun in a world full of otherwise serious superheroes. Mm. And like, I, my feeling is they've paired her up with the new warriors to try and give her that dynamic. So like, they're probably going to be kind of serious superheroes who are also slightly losers. And she's yeah. going to be like the crazy offbeat one. Well, so which is the... sort of what they've done with Great Lake Avengers, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. When they put her in that mm-hmm. recently. But so I, I read that new warrior series that led into Civil War, the Scotty yeah. Young one. Um, and that had that vibe that it was a group of, it was a group of characters who wanted to be taken seriously, uh, but kind of either took themselves too seriously or had powers that were a bit crap. And there was kind of maybe only Speedball, who was the proper goof, um, who uh, I don't know, like maybe if you if you make Squirrel Girl the proper goof, uh, but in a more I don't know, in a in a less useless way. Maybe like she's unbeatable. Make her the, the one competent member of this group. You could have even had like the new warriors pre existing her joining the team and then maybe she she's the one who finally turns them into a into a decent outfit. But this is also this is a sitcom, so it might be something closer to the tick than it is to you know, anything else in the Marvel universe. Yeah. I, I mean, don't know, I, you guys. I, I, I feel like Squirrel Girl plus uh, Kevin Beagle. That's I'm, I'm excited. Um, I like. I wish I could be excited, but I just part of me is like, I'll wait and see. Yeah, I, I don't know. I just I don't have a lot of faith in Marvel's TV output, especially having just watched all thirteen episodes of Iron Fist. <laughs> yeah. That's that's fair. That is fair. Although <laughs> Marvel were also responsible, James, for Legion, which they co-produced with Fox, and was amazing. Was absolutely amazing. And we will be doing a um, bonus episode on that at some point. When Seb, Seb, are you nearly you nearly finished? I'm still about only about halfway through, but I am basically. The rest of my family, it's been difficult. We were initially all watching it, but it's been difficult to find the time for us all to sit down and watch it. And most of my other family members have kind of dropped out interest-wise, so I'm just going to plough through myself because <sighs> I think it's fantastic. And I'm worried, I've already had bits spoiled, and I'm worried I'm going to end up having too much spoiler before I get the chance to see the rest. So I uh, I don't I, know. I think uh, the joy the joy is in the watching. In uh, mm. uh, the, the plot, much, much less important than... What, what crazy stuff is unfolding in front of your eyes. Um, that's just my, uh, at the moment, uh, every podcast, I'm going to talk about how Legion is good. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's really good. And eventually James will watch it. Okay. Um, well, I think that's it for this week's comic book movie and TV news. Um, if you're thinking they haven't spoken about something really massive that's happened in the last couple of days, we've recorded this podcast um, a couple of days early just to fit around our schedule. So if we've missed anything, don't worry. It will be on the next episode slash mini slash we'll cover it at some point. 
so we'll move on now to our spoiler-filled discussion of Tim Story's 2005 movie, Fantastic Four. Um, but before we do, let's take a little listen to some of the movie. physical structure is changing. It's terrible news. I think I'll get a second opinion. The cloud has fundamentally altered our DNA. That's gross. Reed, look at me. I can't. He's hitting up from his core. You don't want to walk around on fire for the rest of your life, do you? Is that a trick question? Come on, am I the only guy who thinks this is cool? What if we got these powers for a reason? I've always wanted power. Victor, you always thought you were a god. Let's not fight. No, let's. Don't even think about it. Never do. Why, thank you. So are you. (laughs) Okay, so that was a snippet on Fantastic Four. And yeah, this movie, you guys, came out the same year as Batman Begins. And um, (laughs) I think for a while it probably looks like one of those two movies had set the tone for all superhero movies going forward. But we we kind of ended up settling on a bit of a middle ground, didn't we? (laughs) As we we move forward into the MCU (laughs) and all that kind of stuff. Um, yeah, I mean this because I do think that this, you know, without getting too much into it now, like it's, I think this is a film that looks very different watching it in 2017 than it would have done in 2005, and like I can understand the reaction that it got in 2005 while not really sharing that reaction in 2017. I mean, this movie did get a sequel. Um, it did okay at the box office. I was looking. I think it was like in the top 15 grosses for the year. Um, but it was kind of derided back then as being really lightweight and silly and, um, and I guess fanboys just really didn't go for it. And, you know, it was followed up by the sequel, which was oddly titled for Rise of the Silver Surfer, (laughs) um, which I, I actually think is a pretty decent movie and actually does the Silver Surfer pretty well. Um, and there's a lot of things that this movie does right. I think just tonally, it's a bad fit for 2005. Um, and yeah, l- looking back on it, I think it's fine. There's stuff that you can point at and go, oh, I like that, and I like that, and I like that decision, and that's and that's pretty cool. It, it just kind of gets a bit boring once you're about 45 minutes in. 
It it does, and it's and it, it. I mean, what you said about you know people saying it's lightweight and silly, like those are those are entirely valid points. It's just that back then they were criticisms, and I, I don't really see them as criticisms now. <laughs> I think the lightweightness does kind of come into play in the second half, where um, I mean, Joe, is it you who's fond of using the word stakes? Um, and Possibly, yeah, and it just doesn't really feel like it has much in the way of. You know, no. you, you don't really get a sense of anything for the for the, about the last forty five minutes or so. <laughs> um, it just kind of yeah, it just it just makes its way to its like I, I don't I don't think there's with the exception of one scene which I've actually gone on about before because it's the interesting thing about me in this film is that I I don't think I've sat and watched it all the way through start to finish. I'd seen bits of it and I'd sat and watched kind of chunks of it before. And there's a particular scene that's, that I'd always used to kind of criticise this film with <laughs> at a particular moment. It's, but apart from that, I don't think it does anything particularly egregiously badly. What's um, the moment, Seb? It's the um, the scene with Sue taking off her clothes to cross the bridge. Yeah. And, oh, no, she's visible again. And then the fact that they all make that successfully make their way across the bridge. But it's like, I thought she was turning invisible so that she could sneak across. But then they're all there because she created a distraction by being there in her underwear. So it's like the plan was basically for her to be there in her underwear so that they could. It was just. It's just ridiculous. I it's think. Really I think I've made this point on the podcast before, but they kind of do the exact same scene in the yeah. sequel as well. Ah, uh, yeah. But um, I mean, I, I, having watched it all the way through, actually, that's kind of a rare misstep, and it is also pretty much the only moment that the film does anything like that. Because for the most part, when it's trying to be funny, which is quite a lot of the way through, I think it succeeds. And, like, the first 30 or 40 minutes are a lot of fun. And, like, whenever particularly Chris Evans and Michael Chiklis, uh, <laughs> you know, like... Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, That's uh, a good jump, pairing. Jump, jumping straight in, but that bit when Ben wakes up after the accident... Oh, scene of brilliant. <laughs> That's such a good joke, and it's so well played by both of them, and I genuinely laughed out loud at that bit. You know, it's, it's one of those. Good joke. It's one of those things that it's it's a very complicated thing with big movies and big properties, that what you've got to consider is all of these audiences that are going... These different audiences that are going to see your movie, and... The main audience is the people who are going to see it immediately in the cinemas, who've seen the trailers, who heard that the title is Fantastic Four, and vaguely know what Fantastic Four is, because it's a well-enough-known IP, and knows that at one point in that movie, these characters who currently don't have powers are going to have powers. And sometimes, uh, big movies, big TV shows, don't acknowledge that. As we mentioned on our Iron Fist episode, there is an episode two a big discussion of like a gaslighting episode where is he really the iron fist or is he insane no we it's a show called iron fist we all know he's the iron fist you don't need to be doing this story with us right now and that scene plays with that idea so well that you all know that ben grimm is about to become that big rock monster thing that you recognize and it's amazing because I was watching it for the, for the I'd, I'd forgotten the scene. I'd totally forgotten the scene. And in it, I was like, I was going, well, why has he got a mirror right next that to the exactly bed? That was exactly what I thought. Did. I was like, why is there a mirror there? It's such a cliche. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then the slow reveal because they kind of like, they move the camera because it's all shot from Ben's POV. Yeah. And they like the camera just like jerks back up so you can't see his hands. So he literally hasn't seen anything. <laughs> 
And similarly, I'm also not ashamed to say I properly laughed at Johnny's prank where he gets Ben to slap himself in the face with yes. a load of shaving foam or whipped cream or whatever it is. Yeah. Um, I would say Johnny and Ben, that relationship um, and those two performances are unequivocally successful in this movie. Yeah, yeah. And that's, really, that is really despite good. Michael Chiklis being under about three feet of rubber. <laughs> Well, yeah, it's like, I mean, noticeably rubber. Yeah. I mean, as much, as much as I love Chris Evans, like, there are moments when Johnny gets a bit too annoying, and particularly when it's Johnny on his own. But I think every moment with uh, with Chicklis, either as Ben or, or when he's actually under the makeup as the thing, I think is perfect. That character is perfectly played, and it hits the exact emotional and story beats that you want. That you know, that's what you come to to Ben Grimm for. Like yeah. everything that happens with him in terms of how he reacts to what happens to him, the bit where he's sitting on the bridge with the bloke committing suicide and the pigeon, um, the stuff with Alicia. <laughs> it's just, yeah, it's just it absolutely is 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 what you want from Ben. Yeah, Grimm he's film. like grumpy and tragic but heroic and uplifting. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, and um, and no confirmed kills. <laughs> that's an amazing throwback james <laughs> throw forward as it might be um on chris evans um i i get what you're saying seb about him being irritating uh from time to time because when i first saw this movie a decade ago that was my overwhelming thought that man this this character is just the worst. I can't put up with him. I like okay, they they hired the guy who was satirically playing a jock in not another teen movie to be an actual jock here. And I just had enough of him. Watching it back now, the interplay with Chickless is really fun, and I just found it so refreshing to watch a superhero who went My powers are not a burden. Mm. I'm not I, I'm not bothered about having them whatsoever. This is pretty cool. I'm a superhero. And I can just imagine, because this is a superhero movie more than any that I can think that we've done in this podcast, that it's for kids. Kids kids are basically I tell any you, age can go like see this. One There's thing, one moment in it that's not. One thing that I really liked was the bit where he like reveals his powers to the public and he just starts going like, yeah, here's my code name. I'm a superhero. And it's like, mm-hmm. fucking finally, like a superhero who <laughs> actually picks his code name and instead wants to wear a costume instead of having like the newspapers come up with some lame thing or like them avoiding saying like oh here's whiplash but we're not going to call him whiplash <laughs> except in the credits and he literally goes these costumes need the logo i'm going to put them on yeah. and the, the, yeah the point i was building to was that i can imagine a you know seven eight year old kid watching this movie and going yes that that's why it, that i want to be a superhero and so does that guy mm-hmm. um and it doesn't happen often enough Nope. Um, yeah, and and all of that kind of stuff is really fun. Um, it, it's it's also as well like not even just in terms of the tone, um, be feeling quite refreshing watching it now in terms of that first half hour or so being light. 
it's the the pacing and the economy of the storytelling. And so it, it's not just the fact that they go into space like about ten minutes in, and the accident happens about fifteen minutes in. Although that yeah. that is nice that you don't have to wait an hour for that. What really impressed me was, and admittedly, okay, I am coming to this with knowledge of who the Fantastic Four are and what their kind of background and what their relationships are. But it felt to me like ten minutes into this film you've got a handle on these characters, who they are, what their history is, and what their relationships are with one another. There is actually some really tight and economical scripting and storytelling in terms of getting you to that point that when they're on that space station, you know who they are, even though you know who they're going to become. Um, yeah. You know, it doesn't waste any time in actually getting that stuff across. And I think, I think I would, it's clever I mean, that it's as given well, credit for in terms as well, of how like, it gets you to understand them. As well, there are a lot of changes between the relationships from the comics so it's not like they're using mm. a completely classic setup like there are some differences in particularly with sue and dr doom like they've changed some things and they still set them up quickly so that you're in no doubt what the you know yeah. what the relationships like, you know, are you know sue, sue is... walking into the room at, at that point it's like you don't have to know the fantastic four or know sue storm so but it's like oh so that's reed's ex-girlfriend and now she's working with doom it's mm-hmm. like that's it you know and some of it's done in a slightly cliched way, but... <laughs> There's a particular way that they're able to do all of that so quickly and so economically, which is that of the five main, the five main characters that we meet, they all have one aspect to their personality and every relationship is defined by one thing. That's And, and so they're not complex characters, they're not mm. complex relationships. They True. are They are very basic, but it's... I, it, it's fine for the kind of movie that they're trying to make. So, yeah, as we said, like, Johnny and Ben are antagonistic. Um, ben is kind of, um, he's Reed's right-hand man. Reed pines for Sue because she's his ex-girlfriend. Um, and then, yeah, what 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 characteristic do they each have? Well, Ben's quite short-tempered. Johnny's cocky. You know, it's, it just, it does it in five minutes because it literally goes, here is one character trait, latch onto that. And also, because these are Silver Age comic book characters, it kind of felt to me like a Silver Age comic book movie. Mm. Like yeah, I, I mean, almost thing... felt like you could have you could have had little little words popping up in the top corner. Like, <laughs> meanwhile, you know, like a, a little bit like kick ass almost. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, that's that's sort of how superhero teams work. Like characters are created specifically to play off one another. Hmm. And like it's it's something I enjoy specifically about the Fantastic Four is that they've got this like tight family dynamic. Mm. And and again, like I mean, you know, the film actually bothers to spend some time to put them in this environment where they're locked in yeah. the building essentially. And you you get again about a solid ten or fifteen minutes of the film where the only thing that's happening is the Fantastic Four being a dysfunctional family mm-hmm. living together, and it's like. Yeah, that's what the Fantastic Four should be. They are a family. That's like the key thing about the Fantastic Four is they are a superhero family. And the stories have to be as much about that family dynamic as they are about the superheroics. And, you know, this film bothers to put that in. And and that's, you know, not necessarily given. In fact, I remember saying that one of the things I didn't like about the Josh Trank version is that they completely jettison the aspect and it's like, mm. okay, fair enough, you can do that and tell a completely different story with those characters. But it is a bit baby slash bathwater if you're doing that. Should we talk about the character that I don't think they get right? Ooh, which is... that, well, there are two there are two big <laughs> characters that I don't think they get right. 
Okay, well, let's talk about the one that I think they really don't get right, which yeah. is <laughs> Doctor Doom. Mm-hmm. Um, I, it could just be a case of some very bad miscasting. Um, I actually I, I don't just, think the casting's like yeah, particularly I, bad. Like you know, you can if if you're doing the, this this Doom where the idea is that he's this handsome billionaire guy before he becomes Doctor Doom, I think. I think he's well cast, and I actually like the stuff in the like before he kind of properly becomes Doom. I quite like him, and I quite like him as an antagonist in this. There's something that I thought they were gonna do um, that it turns out that they don't, which is a shame because I thought it would have been really nice. But um, I don't know if you, I don't know if you know this, James. Um, that apparently there was a thing that Jack Kirby wanted to do with Doctor Doom, which is that he wanted to reveal, and I think he even did a sketch years later yeah, showing yeah. how he would have <laughs> revealed Doctor Doom's face. And basically that Doctor Doom's face would have been absolutely perfect except for a tiny scar. Mm-hmm. And the reason that he wore the, his mask was that he had this tiny imperceptible scar. Yeah, and that he was and- just incredibly vain. Exactly. And I thought they were going to do that when his scar starts to appear and he goes on about not wanting to show his scar on TV. Well, I think, to I be like, fair, oh, like, yeah. I think canonically the the current explanation is that he had a tiny scar, he put the mask on before it was cooled and that scarred him even further. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I, I mean, I think as well, I'm maybe used to the idea of because I've read it in Ultimate Fantastic Four, the idea of Doom as um, as that type of character and that kind of you know contemporary of I know he is a contemporary of Reed's in the comics as well, but just sort of, you know seeing more of him before he's Doctor Doom as they did in in Ultimate that I don't mind that the they spend that much time with that version of the character before then turning him into the hooded version. I think the issue is just when they turn him into proper Doctor Doom, he doesn't sound or act anything like you would hope that Yeah, Doom that like that the voice is wrong. Ah, the that, voice, voice is, is really so wrong. wrong. Yeah. I mean, for That's me just his voice and he's just using colloquialism and it's like if they'd had him throughout the entire film if they if they just cuz they introduced quite late on his Latvian nationality, and it's like if that mm. had been there from the start, and if he had spoken in a quite affected way already, then you could have carried that through and made it more melodramatic. But he's just ordinary and colloquial the way he talks, and yeah, it's just yeah, just like Doctor work. Doom should be grandiose, and exactly. especially if you're going to put him in the hood and the armor, and you know, give him all that stuff, it should. He should be more than just a guy, like a business guy. Yeah. I felt we were flashing over to him too often, given the amount of change. Because his character's evil to begin with. Like, he starts off evil, <laughs> his face starts getting scarred, he gets he gets some powers, he uses the powers, and the, the whole, like, uh, nothing really happens with any, like, considering how often we we flip back to him nothing happens like subtly or slowly it's like you know suddenly he gets his powers he blasts a guy through the chest (laughs) that's the bit where i thought oh maybe yeah he just suddenly starts just suddenly starts killing a bunch of people yeah and then but then when he has to wipe out the fantastic four doesn't think to use his powers (laughs) i mean it's weird isn't it because like the thing is in this film like what should have been the issue is he should have been the family member who felt like he was getting kicked out 
like that should have been the dynamic there and that's how you make him into the evil one but they just like he was always a dick and he always hated everyone else except for sue and like there it didn't feel like there was any natural progression from him being mates with them all to hating them all and wanting them dead Sorry, I don't, I've, I don't know what I'm following that up with. <laughs> well, I've got... Okay, I've got something further then that I want to say, which is that the the thing I think this film gets most wrong is using Sue as, like, a bargaining chip between Reed and Doom and, like, making her the kind of trophy that's getting passed between them. And they don't, like... At, at no point do they significantly give her any agency of her own and say like actually i'm more than just a potential girlfriend for i one of you yeah and i was going to say when seb mentioned about that underwear scene earlier on i kind of think that that's the way they treat the character the whole way through like yeah every character has one characteristic and hers is that she's hot like yeah they I mean, they do it with the scene where she walks in in the costume to begin with, and yes, the the point of that is that Reed doesn't really notice. He's more he's more interested in the suit. But yes, there's the nude scene, and for most of the final act, she's running around in a kind of low cut white top. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That doesn't have much support. And I just felt like Jessica Alba had been cast for us to ogle. Um, it, I, I, I thought it was pretty uncomfortable. Um, the one thing I did note, though, is um, this is the second film where Johnny and Sue aren't technically the same race, but no one had a problem the first time around. Nope. Don't seem, don't seem to remember. Mm-hmm. Uh, one, no. one, one, per- one person had a problem. <laughs> I wondered if we were going to talk about this. <laughs> Um, do go yeah. on so I'm just going to see I, I, I should have brought this up in advance I'm just going to see if I can find uh, the quote um, John Byrne obviously you know who John Byrne is um, I do 
he um, took issue with Jessica Alba being cast. Not so much the fact that that Sue was um, Hispanic, but that um, she still had blonde hair while doing so. Uh, and his his he said. Personal prejudice. Hispanic and Latino women with blonde hair look like hookers to me, no matter how clean or cute they are. Somehow <laughs> those skin apple. tones that look so good with dark, dark hair just don't work for me with lighter shades. Wow. I mean, the the amazing thing is that he's still got a job in the comics industry. Well, Having that, said that, that. That job is doing Star Trek. Um, sort of weird photo comics. Admittedly, <laughs> admittedly, it's not a great job, and, but and it's still a job. Commissions for ten thousand dollars a pop. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, the, 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 certainly for for quite a few years. After, I mean, that's probably not even the most controversial thing John Burns ever said, but it was definitely one of the the headline ones. And yeah, the fact that he continued to well, it's it's not that surprising when you think of what goes on in comics. Generally, no, but, quite. Um, yeah, that was that was not one of his finest hours. Let's say. Yeah. Okay, well, I mean, aside but... from that, it is, it is interesting that, yeah, I, I think it says a lot that people were happy not to notice when it was Jess, when it was slight, you know, changing Sue Storm's race and having her be Jessica Alba. Compare that with the reaction to Michael B. Jordan, and it's like, yeah, there's, we can see what's going on here. Hmm. Unfortunately, I think that Jessica Alba has been cast basically just for the way she looks. And. It, it makes it kind of, I, I think, probably on a par with the way that Sue Storm is treated in the remake. Like, if there is any character who has, who has been badly done by in live-action adaptations, it's Sue Storm. Because, yeah, she's, she's just Especially such a nothing character here. Like, how much Sue Storm has done in comics and how much has happened <laughs> to her. And, you know, like, she is... And admittedly, sometimes in the comics, that's just I was gonna say, like, the mother figure. Let's but... be fair. When she was introduced, it was she was very much the damsel of the team. Oh, like, yeah. Damsel I mean, yeah, in distress. I don't and they, mean in the, yeah. in the Stan Lee stuff. Like, um, but... if you go to the source material, it takes quite a while for her to come into her own. Yeah. But again, there's no excuse to be recalling that 60s version of the character, like, 40, 50 years on. It's like I said about them, and, and again, them all having kind of like one defining relationship to each other. Well, two of her defining relationships is, you know, the romantic link to the two lead male characters. And then her and Johnny are basically like, well, we're going to say that they're brother and sister, and you can accept that, but they're basically never going to speak to each other. And mm. I don't really remember Sue having much to do with Ben, so she she just kind of feels like she's there to be between the between doom and reed and mm. yeah uh, yeah it's just it's just a waste and it's not it's not a very interesting character and this film kind of turns i think in the second half into a like you said like just a bit of a trudge from one plot point to another and it kind of kind of ambles toward it towards an ending but the first half hour, 40 minutes, isn't that. The first half hour, 40 minutes is loads of fun character stuff. And I don't, I don't feel like Sue gets to have fun either. I mean, Reed is pretty self-serious, um, but I think he gets to have a, l- a little bit more than she does. I mean, and sort of Reed's playing like a straight man in a world full of comedians. And like yeah. you get you get comedy from his indifference to the craziness around him and that sort of thing. So it's like... He's still he's still got comedy in him, whereas 
at best she's the butt of a few jokes it kind yeah. of struck me actually it kind of strikes me when i think of it that i mean I, I i like him in this even though he doesn't get a load of chances to stretch himself no pun intended uh, <laughs> the pun the, was um, intended <laughs> it actually wasn't until i said it, <laughs> uh, it was. um but actually the, i think the way i'd sum up uh Yoan griffith's performance in this is that he'd be a great cyclops <laughs> <laughs> i like Yoan griffith i think he's he, he's i, I like he's someone I like who's cyclops He's never, but he's never. He's one of those actors that you feel like that the industry has never quite known what to do with him. Yeah, definitely, um, because he's not quite heroic enough. He's not. He's not. Basically, he's not quite handsome enough to be the hero, but he's not. But he's too ugly enough to be the funny one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's just kind of in the middle. I tell you what, though, when when this film was announced, there was a, there are a lot of people saying that Alexei Denisov should have been Reed Richards. Like oh. that was a big fan cast, and that would have been fantastic. <laughs> no pun intended. <laughs> really, I, I yeah. don't see. I don't see that at all. Really? Are you really serious? Like, yeah. have you have yeah, you seen no. Angel? Have you seen Angel? Yeah, yeah. Like Angel Wesley in sort of Angel season three, three or four. That is basically that is basically Reed Richards. But he's not a movie star, is he? Is he own Grufford? <laughs> well, fair. Okay. That's fair. I also thought that it was interesting. Um, Hamish Linklater turns up in this movie as Doom's kind of sidekick. Um, <laughs> and um, second reference second reference yeah. in this podcast, Hamish Linklater has most recently been on Legion. And um, I did think to myself, oh, I think this movie would be a lot more interesting with him as Doctor Doom. <laughs> he's, even, he's even got more the voice. He's got a, he's got a much more menacing voice, hasn't he? <laughs> Yeah, and also he is a, he is a much better actor. I mean, he t- he he can be equally good in serious movies, goofy comedies, all that kind of stuff. And um, after recently enjoying him in Legion, I thought, oh, it would be uh, it would have been interesting to see what he'd have done in that role. Should we talk a bit more about the general comedic tone of this movie? Because I think that might be where the the fanboy reaction to this movie where it probably soured because there are comic book movies now that do humor we you know you do you've got guardians of the galaxy and deadpool as two examples but they are humor that is very much tailored towards the kind of audience i think that would enjoy comic book movies this is humor that is aimed at a kind of a broad family audience i feel like there's lots of kind of like double take gags and broad <laughs> and, i think and broad kind of like you know winking at the camera almost kind of stuff yeah i think probably the reason it wasn't quite so well accepted was because like in having that sort of humor it, the only films it was evoking in any way would have been the schumacher batman films <laughs> Yeah. like which had just ridden roughshod over the concept of superheroes to the point where they'd basically been stopped for like what we had like five years without a major superhero movie and then they brought back x-men and spider-man which were kind of fairly reverent like not unfunny but not like comedic openly comedic takes on the source material and so I think when Fantastic Four came out going like, hey, we're going to put some jokes in. Everyone went, oh, God, like, no, let's all 
point to Batman Begins instead. Whereas actually, like in the years since, superhero movies have become a bit more fun and Fantastic Four looks less like the throwback than it did. But I still think the humour is, it's different to what we're getting now. <laughs> I mean, I, I thought on a couple of occasions here it was like carry-on-esque. Like, <laughs> the, I mean, I've already said about the scene where Jessica Alba walks in wearing the outfit and the camera might as well be saying, look at her boobs, look at her boobs, look, she's got boobies. And the the gag there is that everyone notices apart from Reed. And then the scene when Johnny, all his clothes burn off, he ends up in that hole in the water and <laughs> in the, of the melted of the melted snow. And the nurse who he's gone skiing <laughs> oh, with Jesus. walks up and he goes, Wanna join me? <laughs> and she kind of drops she drops her skiing stuff. I and mean, it's like a shot from behind, like through her legs and I was literally expecting Chris Evans to say "Ooh, uh, matron" at that point. <laughs> <laughs> Although I do actually quite, li- I quite liked the gag of he lands and essentially accidentally creates a hot tub, and his reaction is to go, "Well, I'm at a ski resort in a hot tub." I did, I quite liked that as a yeah. as a character moment, and and Chris Evans's natural charm plays that quite well. <laughs> I mean, but the old, I guess what I'm saying is, I didn't dislike that joke. I just think that's that's what the movie's doing. It's doing kind of big broad humor and it's doing slapstick physical stuff which kind of makes sense with the with the power set of these characters i mean we saw i i said at the time it was badly executed but the josh trank movie going looking at these these powers and saying well we could do body horror that's that's a valid take on what you can do with these characters and i think that slapstick broad physical humor is another one Mm -hmm. and Mm. And I, I think it it works it works as an idea for this movie. It's just you can also understand why it didn't catch on because maybe it it got a broad enough audience to the to the theaters that weekend to justify making a sequel, but it was never going to it was never going to catch capture the imagination of kind of like no a I franchise mean, audience. Yeah, the thing like the thing to note about this film as much as Josh Trank's film is that neither of them really captures the like pure essence of the fantastic four in the way that marvel's films do the marvel studios films like so what what is that well that's the question isn't it like well okay i'll tell you what the the pure essence of fantastic four in a movie is the incredibles like (laughs) that's uh, stuff like that big hero six like those pixar superhero films or whatever they're they're getting it right because they're about family and togetherness and, you know, they're funny and lighthearted, but also there are, you know, earth-shattering things happening that have actual stakes involved. So Mm. if, you know, if you wanted to do a superhero movie that got the Fantastic Four exactly, that's what you'll be looking towards. So I think, like, the Tim Story movies kind of undershoot a bit and the uh josh trank one just went completely in the wrong direction so yeah like neither of them has got it exactly right but i think these ones are closer Mm. and in terms of the way that they face off with dr doom does does that relationship feel like classic like they like they're getting in the right ballpark i mean the thing is even if doom is wrong it's not really the classic setup the traditional thing is like doom and reed are intellectual equals ish like 
probably i think the idea is reed tends to come out on top because he's not as arrogant as dr doom like that's like dr doom's flaw is his arrogance and Mm. like in another world they would have been friends like they are friends to a point they were friends like they they try and set up a completely different dynamic here which is that like they were all a family and he's the you know dick uncle or whatever which fair enough like that's that's a version that brings the character to life without having all the weird baggage of him being a monarch of Latveria or whatever like i can (laughs) i can understand why they drop that um but at the same time they don't focus enough on his arrogance being his downfall like his downfall in this is that he's a dick yeah and it's it's also like i've been i talked before about stakes and i do think there there is an issue of of scale um because i mean admittedly you know the the film can only set up so much but particularly you know when your film opens with we're going into space and then this accident <laughs> gives us powers in space yeah for the climactic fight to just be a fight between five of them in a street in new york it's just kind of you know it it, sh- it should be bigger the scale of it should be bigger yeah because they and, and like really <laughs> The public kind of reacts like, oh, finally, some superheroes have saved New York. And it's like, but all they've no, really they, they've, done... They've is... saved themselves. They've saved themselves. Yeah, yeah exactly. exactly. Like, there's, there's no sense. I mean, I'm sure he probably would go on to, but there's no sense at this point that Doom is threatening the world or, or even the city or anything like that. It's just he's threatening them Yeah, for like they defeat him. For the public <laughs> adulation to really work, they should have saved people from something. Yeah. I mean, you do feel like this this movie needed a Doctor Doom who was kind of building like a mountain base or whatever and was pointing lasers at the White House. That kind yeah. of, you know, silly, grandiose stuff. Basically, I mean, he needed to have gone and become properly Doctor Doom about 30 minutes earlier than he actually does. <laughs> so that he can, you know, like by, by the end of the first act, you should have got rid of all of the stuff with him trying to split up the Fantastic Four and, and you know, have Ben lose his powers and stuff. Although I do kind of quite like that scene with the two of them in the diner just because it's kind of ridiculous. <laughs> Doctor Doom is buying <laughs> um, a load of pancakes for Ben Grimm. But... Yeah, he should have been off away and like licking his wounds and setting himself up back in Latveria, especially seeing as they do bother to establish that he has a background in Latveria. Uh, and obviously that's what they're trying to do with the sequel is send him off there and you know, <laughs> set him up there. But that should have been done earlier in this film so that he can then re-emerge as a threat the to, thing is, much, as well, to a much greater number of people. It would have made sense as well for him to have been sitting there getting jealous that the Fantastic Four were getting all this like adulation that he wasn't because that would have spoken mm. to Doctor Doom as a character. And I kind of feel like they should have done something more like the end of the first X-Men film, where he's got a plan and it threatens the UN or something, and the superheroes stop him. Like that. I can't believe I ever thought we'd say that, that, that something should be like Magneto's plan in the first X-Men film. <laughs> but actually, but that, yeah, that would, that's what it that needed. would suit this film. The tone yeah. of this film <laughs> and, and Doctor Doom would suit that magneto that magneto thing feels more like a doctor Doom. well it's because it's like i said at the time it's a really like silver age thing that he's built a machine and it's gonna kill everyone like Mm. you know that's that's the tone of this movie like joe said it's kind of silver age nonsense yeah i think i said this to you guys after uh, at the time but when they when i read secret wars when they were doing that big build at the end of at the end of kind of the last last big crossover in in the Marvel universe, the Doctor Doom there. I read that and I suddenly went, 
oh, I get it. I get why this guy is routinely held up as, like, one of the best, if not the best, mm-hmm. comic book villain. Um, because this movie and the the Josh Trank one, you wouldn't have you wouldn't have any idea. But there is something about him, like he almost feels. I said grandiose, but I don't know even like Shakespearean almost. Like there is something yeah, just yeah. there is something so overblown, but also like he feels like he has so many cliches rolled into one in the kind of in the in the perfect way that he is just this awesome ultimate evil and that you can do so many different things with well like um, for me the and, thing and, and complex at the same time as yeah well. i mean the thing that i like about dr doom is that like if he was just a little bit better in himself he would be a force for good like hmm. he's it's a bit lex luthor-esque i guess in that like he's a genius but he's too petty to become like the the genius he should be like he's held up by his rivalry with someone else. like he just wants to be better than Reed Richards. Which yeah. is kind of why um you know, one of the things that is interesting about Secret Wars is this is what happens when Doom get gets put in or puts yeah. himself in a position where he gets the opportunity to rule the world like he's always wanted to and Reed Richards isn't around. Yeah, and like the thing the you know, the funny thing is it's actually quite nice to a point. Yeah, like, like, yeah, he's sort of. I mean, I don't know if benevolent is the right word, but well, that yeah, was always that's always why like Latverians generally like Doctor Doom because he treats them well and like all he requires is absolute obedience. Which yeah, if he's giving you everything you want, fair enough. It's like he's a kind of benevolent, yeah, like you say, benevolent, benevolent dictator. dictator. Yeah, and so like that's a complex setup, but it's the kind of thing that you can't really do easily in a film because. I don't know. It's maybe a bit too wild to to set up in such a short amount of time. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. As a as a side point to the the comic book stuff that we were just talking about, if anyone isn't reading Marvel comics, Secret Wars was what like two years ago at this point, a little over two years. Yeah. And since the end of Secret Wars, um, the Fantastic Four and Doctor Doom. Well, no, the Fantastic Four have been missing from Marvel's lineup. There are, I think, Ben and Johnny are still around in some capacity. Yeah, what was? Yeah, Ben. Ben was in the Guardians of the Galaxy, and Johnny yeah. was hanging out with the Inhumans for a while. Yeah, yeah and Doctor Doom had an Iron Man thing going on. Yeah, still does. Yeah, the he's, in, in, he's infamous yeah, Iron the Man infamous still. Iron Man. But some some other stuff that's been going on in comics at the same time, and DC has had this whole rebirth stuff, is ascendant at the moment. And Marvel kind of seems like they're stuck in a rut that since Secret Wars, they haven't really been at every big thing that they've tried to do with the universe with Civil War 2. And now with this Captain America Nazi stuff <laughs> is kind of blowing up back in their face. Mm. Do you think any of that has something to do with the lack of the Fantastic Four, or is there, you know, is there something that, like, it's not quite Marvel if the Fantastic mm. Four aren't around, because they are the founding, they're the, they're the first of the Silver Age heroes, right? I, I think it's more of a coincidence, I think it's <laughs> because, the, because Fantastic Four comics have not sold particularly well for quite a while. And they reached what I think many would argue was a creative high point with Jonathan Hickman's run. Yeah. But that still wasn't the biggest seller. I mean, it was probably one of the best things that Marvel were doing. Um, and, you know, 
Hickman kind of ascended to essentially control of the Marvel Universe storylines, that culminated in Secret Wars. I think the problem has been more that creators like Jonathan Hickman are no longer working. While I'm not the biggest Hickman fan, which I've said before, um, creators like him aren't working at Marvel anymore and nobody's really stepped up. Yeah. So that, you know, the, the, the connection with the Fantastic Four is really that Hickman's not there anymore and the Fantastic Four were kind of his baby. But I don't think if you had reed richards and sue storm in the current marvel lineup would it make that much of a difference i mean spider-man is still around and actually spider-man's comics are still pretty good but that's not really helping marvel at the moment i mean like the problem that's afflicting marvel at the moment is definitely one of like strategy in that they've had a lot of ongoing crossovers and stuff that have just been uninteresting or outright bad and they haven't got the new writing talent that replaced the outgoing writing talent like people like hickman like at, at the when, moment when look at that time when they had hickman fraction yeah Brubaker, exactly bendis yeah like they had some of the industry's best Jason names working Aaron. for them and now they've got like i don't want to name names because you know everyone who's writing comics is deserves to be there and is good to a point but they haven't got the exciting talent that they had for like 10 15 years and i think they've yeah. got people who've done very good comics at you know, kind of almost at a certain level, yeah. but have have stepped up to that running the Marvel universe level and haven't yeah. really well, I, delivered. On. In that case, we can be specific and say like Lemire <laughs> has done amazing comics outside of Marvel, but his Marvel work has been just fine, like fine mm. at best. And Bendis's recent stuff is just fine. Actually, <laughs> Bendis, like Bendis, very recently, like if you don't count Civil War two. Um, but Bendis, on, I mean, I haven't been reading Infamous Iron Man, but apparently that's been very good. And Jessica Jones has been terrific. Yeah, Jessica yeah, Jones has been fair. really good, to be fair to Bendis. But I mean, Bendis it, generally it, is past his prime. I think we can fairly say that. The Jessica Jones, later, uh, we're, we're completely on a sidetrack here, but the je- the later issues of Jessica Jones almost felt like a a thesis in don't judge a comic by its first issue because <laughs> yeah. almost all of the criticisms <laughs> that there were in the first issue were misdirects. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I'm really enjoying that as well. Yeah. But, uh, Brian, Brian Michael Bennis writing Jessica Jones is, is always going to be pretty good. Um, mm-hmm. And I do wonder whether all the Marvel stuff at the moment, there's, there's maybe an issue that their standout comics are their kind of B titles that they're like mm. either their comedy titles or the kind of stuff that Al Ewing's doing. That's never going to be like mainstream <laughs> yeah. driving the direction of the universe. I mean, it it's also, a bit, it's it a bit too subversive. It didn't help that they put a lot of emphasis on the Inhumans as part of some, <laughs> you know, corporate yeah. feud, which and it, that and, didn't and actually, work. It's like, if you're going to, ironically given that the corporate feud stemmed from them not wanting to do stuff with the x-men which was the fox character but like the inhumans stem from the fantastic four books and surely if you're gonna do the yeah. inhumans properly you want the fantastic yeah, I mean, four there along that's a good point yeah. actually we should point out like one of the reasons allegedly that there isn't a fantastic four book at the moment is because uh the sort of corporate head of marvel decided that mm he didn't want to publish a book where the, when the rights were with a different studio and it was like they couldn't get away with cancelling the entire X-Men line but they could de-emphasise the Fantastic Four for the period that there was a Fantastic Four movie about to come out. And like, on the one hand it's been roundly denied by everyone and on the other they did a Jack Kirby sort of anniversary tribute book 
and didn't put the Fantastic Four on the cover. <laughs> so obviously they they were trying to de-emphasize the characters. Like there's also an argument that the reason they're not using them is because they're leaving them fallow for a few years to try and rebuild interest because as Seb was saying the comics weren't selling great even though they were being critically acclaimed and that situation had gone on for years like you know I think they might be reaching that tipping point because I I wouldn't have bought a Fantastic Four comic two three years ago when it was steeped in all of the Hickman stuff (laughs) because I'd missed the start of it um, if they reintroduce them now, Fantastic Four well, like, number one. They, the I thing is, they did the, they did the same I, I with Thor. That, like they yeah. they sent Thor away for a while, and there was no Thor comic for a few years, and the character didn't really appear. And then they brought him back, and since then he's been a pretty big deal. I mean, the movies helped with that. Although the, the Straczynski stuff was going on a good few years before the movie. Oh yeah, yeah. So. Well, like the movie influenced um, the sorry, the Straczynski stuff influenced the movies. So yeah. like that's you know. But it, but it really would not surprise me if, like, if Marvel look at what's going on at DC and they decide to do something a bit like Rebirth, where they really do give it a big old shake-up, kind of a reverse of Secret Wars sort of thing, it wouldn't surprise me if a central point of that was the Fantastic Four returning. No, and, yeah, and definitely. They built definitely. Their, their equivalent of Rebirth around the return of the Fantastic Four in the way that DC built Rebirth around Superman. Mm-hmm. How I mean, about again, a, an entire series that explores how kind of fucked up what happened at the end of Secret Wars was, <laughs> and that maybe Reed Richards is the Doctor Manhattan of the Marvel <laughs> Universe right now? Yeah, I mean, the thing is, like, even if they brought back the Fantastic Four, they'd need the writing talent to do it, and it's like, who, who at Marvel is a big enough deal to get me excited about a Fantastic Four book? And at the moment, it's no one. Mm. Yeah, so they that's could, they could have really done with keeping Tom King. Like that's that. I, no, I tell you actually, Ryan North put Ryan North on Fantastic Four, and I will buy it because I don't know if you read. <laughs> uh, have you read the Midas Flesh, Seb? No. Ryan North did this like adventure book set in space about a group of aliens essentially who come to Earth and find that it's been entirely turned to gold by King Midas, and they steal King Midas's body, and there's a like the universe is fighting over it and it's like classic completely crazy ideas driven science fiction and ryan north could do that with the fantastic four and i would be so there for it well we mentioned it before but also i think al ewing could because actually have you read ultimates yeah that was that was my other suggestion (laughs) ultimates is the best fantastic four book that there's been for years (laughs) fantastic four had lee and kirby then it had john byrne and then it was another 15 years until Hickman took over. 15, 20 years. There was, there was Mark Wade in there. Wade was fine, but I don't... Like, yeah, Wade and Michael Wingo. Waringo. Mm. Like, that was... It was good, but it wasn't era-defining. And, like, I just think Hickman's run was so good, it's going to be difficult to top. Like, you're just going to so, have to... They're going to have to do what they did with Daredevil after Frank Miller and just throw everything at it until someone comes along who's got kevin smith's ability to relaunch the character to pivot this back to the movies these characters are kind of stuck in that same purgatory aren't they in the in the movie universe because (laughs) we have two wildly different takes on the fantastic four between this and the just trank version that really haven't worked and at this point it feels like you would have to entirely move away from the trank version if they ever introduced them into the x-men stuff 
and as much as the Fox Marvel relationship has got better on the small screen, it doesn't sound like any of those characters are, you know, going to be doing any kind of Marvel Studios deal anytime soon. No. So it feels it feels like they're kind of the, the Fantastic Four are stuck in a kind of purgatory. I mean, is that something inherent in the characters that they were this? They were the first Marvel characters. They are, you know, the fact that they weren't selling very well in comics anymore. Is there an audience for the Fantastic Four the same way there is for characters like Wolverine and the Guardians of the Galaxy and Daredevil and Deadpool and Spider Man who are still popular today? I mean, there is a sort of problem inherent with them in that they the dynamic of the characters is this kind of 1950s nuclear family. And not only has that been shown, like, you know, it was a fantasy at the time, but these days it's not even a thing people aspire to. Like, it's so out of date, like, fundamentally. Yeah. So, like, I think if you're going to do the Fantastic Four, the way to do them is to have them reflect, like, modern family ideas. And that would means... it maybe take would it maybe take the comics rebooting the concept and introducing a, a a drastic new take on the Fantastic Four? Yeah, but again, they tried that when Mark Miller took over. Like he he tried to modernize them and it didn't work. Is that ultimate so... stuff? No, no. Mark, they stuff? gave oh. they gave Mark Miller and Brian Hitch uh, the core book called Fantastic Four, and it was a pretty big disaster. And, and Mark yeah. got bored and left. Yeah, I through. mean, well, and, uh, Joe I mean, finished it off. Anyone who read it got bored and left halfway through. I think. <laughs> like the problem is, the Fantastic Four fans want the classic setup, and people who don't want the classic setup won't come to it if they don't do it. So, it's tough. It's really tough. Yeah. Do you feel like there is a there's a Fantastic Four shaped hole in our superhero entertainment right now, though? Yeah, I mean, it the seems, thing it seems wrong that they're not around. The thing I like about the Fantastic Four in is that they are like superhero explorers who embrace their status as superheroes, and particularly the public actually likes them. Like, there's no oh, the Fantastic Four are a menace. Like, they're smashing up buildings and destroying stuff. It's like no, they're out there like pushing the barriers of science, being good role models and like doing charity work. Like that's their role. That's not really a thing that we have in any superheroes, superhero movies. Well, right no, now, exactly. The, the public yeah. liking superheroes. Yeah. Like you get a bit of it with Spider-Man, but like Spider-Man is despised by the authorities generally. Yeah. And considered a menace by certain sections of the press or whatever. And like fundamentally isn't, you know, he doesn't embrace his role as a superhero. Like, everything he does as a superhero is out of practicality for disguising himself and, you know, not being exposed to who he is. Whereas the Fantastic Four are straight-up rock star superheroes. And that's something this movie does get. It gets the idea of them as celebrities. Yeah, it, it tries... In the front of magazines. Yeah. Johnny is flaunting yeah. with it. And you see you have the scene <laughs> where people chase sue down the street which i thought was quite fun yeah because she yeah it's like i mean i don't do i really want to draw a parallel with the beatles given the you know given the name (laughs) (laughs) but i mean that's the sort of tone that i think the character should have and certainly it's yeah like you say it's a it's a hole in 
every superhero universe like there's no movie where that's a thing yeah um let's let's finish off our discussion by actually talking a little bit about the movie again and kind of (laughs) what we do at the end of all these chats any other things that you particularly liked or dislike or took your notice in this movie um, I enjoyed the brash commerc- commercialism of this movie. The scene particularly where Johnny flies into a Burger King poster that says something like it's flame grilled on it and then starts burning <laughs> with Johnny's <laughs> Johnny's fire. And another scene at the start. Like, I'm pretty sure we meet Chris Evans for the first time making a MasterCard gag. You know, the, like... This costs this. This costs that. Your <laughs> yeah, reaction. Prices. Yeah, prices. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I, I've got to say, I do like the silly tone of this movie um, until until the point at which I zone out, which I would say is probably every 10 to 15 minutes after the first 45. I think it's once, like, oh, it's once, still they, once they start going back and forth with the machine that like gives their power slash removes their powers slash makes them worse slash makes them better mm. i think um as well i mean that scene on the bridge um what seems to get overlooked is that like they get praised for saving people but the whole situation is ben's fault <laughs> like <Yes>. ben literally <laughs> causes that whole accident and then they get praised for cleaning it up and it's yeah why doesn't this movie get the stick that Man of Steel does, eh? <laughs> I mean, to be fair, he causes the accident while stopping someone from dying, but yeah. even so. Yeah. He snaps I do, I do like nets. that, you think you got problems moment. <laughs> um, it's just like, it's just every little wry, grumpy bit from Ben really works. And, oh. and the bit in the bar, I mean, the, you mentioned before you, you were going to mention... Yes, you that's know, you literally they, just reminded do, me. It does feel like there are several scenes missing from that relationship. What's, what's going I on there? So I like that they bother to put her in and that they give Ben that little glimmer of hope, you know. So in the comics, is Alicia Ben's of a half? Yeah. For, well, for, and sometimes. She, within the classic yeah. setup, say. Yeah. Yeah. And but after. Does he have a does he have an original girlfriend slash wife who rejects him? Uh, I don't, don't think so. No. That being in there, it yeah, might it might be a, it, it a might be a late record. edition, but it's not yeah. in the classic setup. It works for this setup with the character. That I thought I thought it was it was quite nice. Yeah. It was like we didn't. I mean, it throws the Deb character under the bus, but we don't really know <laughs> yeah. who she is, so that's fine. Apart from she's Laurie Holden, of course. But yeah, <laughs> I mean, Michael Chiklis starts off married to Laurie Holden and then meets Kerry Washington you know not not five minutes later um is she is she blind in the comics as well yeah that's the, the whole yeah. point is she's that, yeah she, she, she's a sculptor and she's blind and, and uh, also the daughter of a supervillain yeah <laughs> right because because of course um and and is the thing there that that only a blind woman could love the thing the I thing don't know. what's the the thing is like essentially all women are bitches because they care about looks, except for Alicia Masters, because she has the oh, gifted ability of being blind. <laughs> I mean, is the, it was the 60s. Or? It was the 60s. That's the problem. Like, you've got the gender politics right. of the 60s. Mixed with the gender politics of Stan Lee. Yeah. 
<laughs> but and just weird as well to see Kerry Washington walk on in that role. I yeah, didn't yeah. I didn't remember her being in this movie. And she's in the sequel as well, apparently. Um so that was that was news to me. Pretty pretty yeah, big this, star these days. This this movie is a is a combination of people who either went on to much, much better things or really didn't do anything much of note afterwards. And and yeah. Michael Chiklis, who's just just <laughs> always Michael he will, Chiklis. He will always be around. Um <laughs> apart from that though, I think the only the only real big thing that I would like to discuss before we draw this to a close is what you guys thought of the realization of all of the powers. This is 2005 CG slash 2005 rubber suits. Um, <laughs> any of the powers more or less successful than all of than any of the others? I think Johnny worked quite well, considering the difficulty of what they had to do with him. Hmm. Like that's yeah. a that's a tough sell. Like flames are difficult at the best of times, and like obviously it didn't look like real flames, but it looked consistent enough that I bought it. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, there's there are so many points where it it, it just looks so obviously like um, an an effect, mm. uh, not an effect, like a, a negative effect. It's like like the most basic negative face effect you could put on, <laughs> on your computer. I mean, the thing, but for me, all of them of the worst of all of them for me was Reed because they kind of they didn't really know how to use his powers. Like he just does occasionally. He sort of reaches far over and stretches his arm for like, a, for a toilet for a roll. toilet roll or something yeah like <laughs> yeah there's so much you can do with reed richards's powers but i feel like they're beyond the imagination and ability of the cgi artists in this film <laughs> I mean, that's not to I, say the josh trank version got it any better because it didn't but no, I, I, I kind of think, though, again, it's one of those things that now, in context, looking back, the whole movie is pretty goofy and the powers looking a little bit shonky, looking a bit cartoon-esque is kind of fine with me. I gave it a pass. I didn't I didn't mind that Chickless looked like he was in a rubber suit because the character still looked fun. He was liked... he was a bit Honey Monster-esque, wasn't he, though? <laughs> I think I like I like what they're doing design wise with the characters. It's just they're not able to fully realise it, I think. Again, like the thing is I the thing I like about the version of the thing I like is the kind of Hulk S monster version, not the kind of you know, whatever he is in this film. I mean, I know because I remember at uh, the Ninja time, Turtle. He's yeah, a Ninja Turtle. Yeah, I remember at the time they they said like it, it's a deliberate choice to not do CGI because we want some element of Chicklis acting through it, which fair enough. But honestly, when it when I saw him in that trench coat making the phone call, I was like, ah, there's Raphael. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean the thing is, in retrospect, like I think the suit ages better than 2005 CGI would have. Probably, yeah. yeah. So you know, in that sense, maybe it was a blessing in disguise. Hmm. Um, okay, well, I think that was Fantastic Four. Um, Seb, what are you recommending this week? <laughs> Ultimate Fantastic Four by Warren Ellis. Um, I mean, yeah, I you know I don't have a a huge grounding in in you know great Fantastic Four comics, and I can't even recommend you the Hickman run because I wasn't that into it. And actually, you've already had some of it, I think, on the last one. Um, 
did either Matthew yes. or James recommend some some Hitman stuff? Uh, James recommended yeah. right at the start of that arc. Yeah, yeah, and I, and I'm sure that, like I say, I'm sure that we will get Steve Lacey on at some point to talk to you about um, some more classic Silver Age Fantastic Four than than you already did on Fantastic Cast. Uh, in fact, let's while we're in recommendations, let's get that plug in that if anyone wants to hear some fun chat about old Fantastic Four comics, go and randomly pick an episode of fantastic yeah or don't, 200 odd or whatever don't be so random because all three of us have been on <laughs> it all three of us have been on it yeah um and i'm pretty so, sure we will be rallying hard to get steve from that podcast onto our yeah like i said i think, I think we, we will have to get him on on that one um but i but i did enjoy for a little while uh ultimate fantastic four which is obviously the ultimate universe reimagining now it started off with six issues co-written bizarrely by mark miller and brian michael bendis which i i i've I would say I find it hard to imagine what a comic written by those two together would be like because they're so different. But I do know what it's like. It's it's Ultimate Fantastic Four, and it's to be honest, it always felt more Bendis than Miller to me. Those issues, but it's just a bit inoffensive. But then Warren Ellis came on. I think he only did twelve issues because he basically did two arcs. And Warren Ellis, uh, particularly with Stuart Immonen on art, so reunite was it reuniting the team of Next Wave? No, it would have been before Next Wave, wouldn't mm-hmm. it? Yeah. Um, it's just a perfect fit for the Fantastic Four, particularly a Fantastic Four that you're attempting to modernise because, you know, Warren Ellis, technology, futurism, techno-babble nonsense, you know. Um, so he did he did two arcs called Doom and Endzone. So I think you should read the first one, which is Doom. I think it's issues 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12. Issues 7 to 12, that sounds right. Um, is, and that, it's, it, is that the one where he has goat legs? Yeah, the, the the ultimate version of Doctor Doom has goat legs for some reason. Um, right. But, I mean, to be honest, Doom is not the best thing about the run. What's the best thing about the run is that it's it's a version of the Fantastic Four that I enjoy in that it's it's got that character dynamic, it's got some nice character humour. Um, James, this the, the, the first arc is the one that's got the Fantastic Anne bit. It? <laughs> um, the second arc is the one that's got Johnny naming the space shuttle, yeah. but it's, it, apart from that gag, it's not as good an arc, but you can go on and read it if you want to. Jo- John, The reveal of Johnny naming the space shuttle is a, is a terrific gag, but there's lots of nice little character humour, good character beats generally, um, and it's, it's about science and exploring and investigation and stuff. I tell you, I, um, like what we should say at this point is, if you want to read a really good Fantastic Four book by Warren Ellis, you want to go and read Planetary. <laughs> yeah where where the fantastic four are the villains um, <laughs> planetary oh, should have just read, but there's too much of planetary to do it as a recommendation on this yeah podcast, really. we'll get so, to it one day we'll find a yeah. way um <laughs> but it's yeah maybe we should do a long read episode on planetary actually yeah um from our bonus episode series but no this is a this is basically it's a shame that there that there wasn't more ultimate fantastic four that was like this because after ellis left um I think Mark did Mark Miller come back on first and then yeah, Mark he, Gary well, took over. Yeah, Mark Miller did the Marvel Zombies thing and the President yeah. Thor thing. And I think he did the Namor stuff as well. Yeah. Greg Land drawing it. <sighs> um and then the book just yeah, just nosedived after that. It had Mike Carey on it for a while. Mike Carey's a good writer, but there was just nothing interesting about that book at all. But for, for twelve issues it was a lot of fun and it was like, ah, this is a good way to do a modern, fun Fantastic Four. So um yeah i think that's that's worth a read excellent okay james what are you recommending okay so last time i recommended uh the what was it solve everything wasn't it the hickman the initial hickman arc 
And this time, like, have you have you read any classic Fantastic Four, like the early Stan Lee stuff? Um, so I read the bit that um, Matt Turner recommended on our last Fantastic Four episode, which uh, had Inhumans in it and Black Panther and um yeah and so you, had... you've touched on the lee kirby stuff then which is fair enough so i'm not going to recommend yeah. that uh, what i am going to recommend then is that you read a graphic novel called the trial of galactus okay which is it's a bit weird because it's kind of several different eras of fan- like several different issues of fantastic four that have been sort of cut up and stapled into one storyline um, but this is the first Fantastic Four comic I ever read and I really enjoyed it. And it's by John Byrne, who is like, obviously we've discussed some of the bad things about him, but also in his time, he was one of the great comic creators. And aside from X-Men with Chris Claremont, this is like his Fantastic Four run is certainly his best Marvel work. Um, cool. So, I mean, I'm recommending it now because I think when the sequel comes around, we'll probably want to concentrate more on Silver Surfer. And this doesn't really have Silver Surfer in it. Um, Right, okay. But it does have Galactus in, obviously. And I'll be interested to see what you make of the story. Because it's kind of... It's from the, the era of Fantastic Four where they'd kind of evolve the characters a bit so you've got a sue who is a bit less damsel in distress version uh the character relationships are not necessarily the classic setup uh you know there are some subplots and stuff in there which aren't necessarily fully explained but i mean when i checked this out from the library when i was probably 14 or 15 because it had uh, Lilandra in, who's an X-Men character, or who I knew at the time as an X-Men character. So as well as being the first Fantastic Four comic I ever read, it's one of the first non-X-Men, non-Spider-Man Marvel comics I ever read. Uh, so like, I've got a lot of personal investment in it, and I'm interested to see how it holds up with, when someone else looks at it. Okay, it's one of those ones that comes with a lot of pressure on it then. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I mean, it's good. It's, like, it's well-regarded. Okay, um, excellent. We'll we'll move on now to our final section, which is the pitch. Um, and this week, um, I, I think we should just be straight up with the listeners. Uh, Seb, you requested this pitch. <laughs> Seb told me his idea for how to bring in the Fantastic Four to the Marvel Cinematic Universe at Thought Bubble last year. And I believe you've had this idea for some time, Seb. Yeah, it's like, you know, as I've said, I'm, it's not that I'm like the biggest Fantastic Four fan, so I have this great burning desire to do it. It's just one, in response to something, I thought about it as a kind of logic puzzle of, of how would you do it. And having thought of it, I've been unable to shake it out of my head ever since then. <laughs> are we are we sure we didn't do this as the pitch on the last Fantastic Four podcast? I don't know, well, but I Seb, wasn't on Seb it. Seb wasn't so. on it. I know, so. but I, I sort of feel like I've tried to solve this problem before. <laughs> <laughs> Were you going to solve it again, James? Okay. <laughs> it might be better or worse. Um, but yeah, I mean, Seb, if you don't win this one, something is I was badly going to say, yeah, I've realised I'm setting myself up for a fall because this is, I've heralded this as my, my big, great idea. And if my big, great idea is not actually a success, then then what's this all been for? Shall I go first? Because I, I know start... Seb's idea, so I can try and do my version of it. 
<laughs> just deliver Seb's idea and then leave him to. You won't have my to come up with something though. on the spot. Oh, we did let's... casting as well. Oh, God, I've got I've got casting. You don't have to let's... have casting, but I've got casting. Let's go with Seb first, and then we'll see whether James can could do anything to beat him. <laughs> okay, Seb, so the... what is your idea to introduce the Fantastic Four into the Marvel Cinematic Universe? Okay, so the, I think the problem that you have with trying to introduce the Fantastic Four into the MCU is that, lo, like I think that one of the things you have to do with the Fantastic Four is focus on the family element, I also think the Fantastic Four work best when they are the original set of heroes, the first ones to come along, and the ones who in some ways inspire other heroes or that other heroes look to, in the way that Superman works best if he's the first hero in a DC universe. But you don't have that with the MCU because Iron Man is the first superhero in the MCU. Well, no, Captain America is, isn't he? But yeah, okay. Um, So how do you retrospectively put the Fantastic Four in that position without compromising the MCU? The other issue is I, I think that both this movie that we've just talked about and the Josh Trank movie, despite the fact that I've recommended a comic in which they're teenagers, I do think if you're doing the Fantastic Four, they do need to be a little bit older for it to really work and for the characters to really work. So... That's another issue that you kind of have to solve. And the Josh Trank movie also had the problem that how would a new team of superheroes ever end up calling themselves the Fantastic Four? It's such a ridiculous name to call yourself when you're just, you know, a new superhero team. Um, so it, my, my idea is an attempt to solve all of these issues. And basically, um, the film would open uh, in the present day, but on a parallel Earth, um, which is a retro-futurist Jack Kirby-designed paradise. It's basically like... It it looks like the year 2017 or whenever you're making the film as if it had been drawn by Jack Kirby in the 1960s. And the Fantastic Four exist in it and have been superheroes for, let's say, five, ten years or more and are well-established as that world's superheroes and they're beloved by the public of the world. Everyone knows who they are. So they're, they're, they're established as the Fantastic Four. That is their name. That's who they are. Um, as is Doctor Doom, of course. Um, and through some kind of plotting of Doctor Doom's, um, they end up being transported across to the Marvel Universe, uh, you know, Marvel Cinematic Universe, around about 20 or 30 minutes into the film, um, where nobody knows who they are, and they have to re-establish themselves. They have to defeat Doom, but in the process of defeating him, they get themselves stuck in this universe. But by the end of the film, they have sort of, you know, they're these kind of new set of heroes who everyone's kind of a bit distrustful of. But by the end, they have established that they are, you know, heroic and, you know, started to show to this world that they are worthy of the name of the Fantastic Four as well. I also kind of had an optional element, which is that the means by which they get transported across is through the work of a comic book writer artist called Stan Kirby. Um, who is the creator of, in the Marvel Cinematic <laughs> Universe, a comic about the Fantastic Four. The estate of Jack of Kirby optional. would not be down with that. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, the idea is that he is that, like, in, in the MCU, they are comic book characters, but they then come across into that world. But I don't know if that's a little bit too hokey. It's kind of been done in some places before, but... That's basically. I basically, I would just really like to see some of a Fantastic Four film set 
in that retro 1960s world before bringing them across to the MCU and establishing them as both new and old at the same time. So they're new yeah. because they're new to this world, but they that they have 10 years or more of being experience of being <laughs> can superheroes. I, can so I just, they're instant ready-made superheroes. It's can I just a, tack something origin. can I tack something onto this pitch? Go on. Can, like I think if you're doing this pitch like uh, there's a fundamental problem in that they will always want to get home. So what you need to do is have Doctor Doom destroy their universe. Well, I thought it was more that their world doesn't need them. Because, like, they've... Pretty yeah, <laughs> that's like saying, does your home need you? Does Liverpool need you? <laughs> no, but you still want to be there. Well, no, the point is they have no way back. Or maybe they would try to... They'd be, they would be trying to get back, but... No, I think it goes have, it, have Doctor Doom destroy their universe and then they yeah. seek refuge okay. in as... If, if that helps like it that. win, I'll, I'll accept that. Um, and I, I will just tack on my admittedly quite late casting thoughts, but um, for Reed Richards, Timothy Oliphant, um, for Sue Storm, Ooh. Charlize Theron, um, for Ben Grimm, Michael Chiklis, no reason to change that, <laughs> um, and for Johnny Storm, Ryan Reynolds. Okay, I mean, that really does complicate things. <laughs> um. James, do you want to deliver a pitch to rival that, or do you just want to add further things to Seb's sharing the victory and walk off into the sunset? No, I like, I think I've actually got a version that might might have a chance of beating that. I mean, admittedly, oh. it, it shares a lot of Seb's ideas. But... <laughs> so, on, I, I don't think I'm the only person ever to come up with this as an idea for it, but I, I mean, we should add that. I feel like, again, I feel like we did this on the last podcast and maybe this was someone else's idea. <laughs> but <laughs> what I would do is, similar to Seb, I think, if you're going to do the Fantastic Four, you need to, you know, have some sort of 60s stuff wrapped up in there and you want the kind of classic versions. So my pitch would be that from the relatively unexplored 1960s of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, because obviously we go straight from Peggy Carter and uh, Michael Douglas to what well, Iron Man in the 90s is the earliest we've been, isn't it? So, you know, there's a yeah. there's a period of time there where you can have the Fantastic Four operating without violating any canonicity. So my pitch is you have these kind of scientific explorers who are essentially the the MCU version of astronauts uh, working with shield maybe um and it's doctor doom and the four you know the core fantastic four characters and they they are they're doing like the space race and they get caught in the negative zone and they they're believed lost but then they reappear in the present day um relatively unaged like they've spent some time in the negative zone but time passes differently or whatever so essentially you've got these characters from the 60s popping out in the present day um and yeah you you know (laughs) what the problem with that though james what? what what you've just done is you've just invented the challenges of the unknown, um, <laughs> which is the characters that Jack Kirby co-created before okay. the Fantastic Four, who basically <laughs> are the Fantastic Four but without a woman. I um, literally did not know that. Yeah, and like the when they they were these they were another set of characters um, who sort of well they would I think they were DC all along, but they disappeared for years. Like Kirby had done them in like the fifties, like before he was a 
um, at Marvel doing the Fantastic Four, and mm-hmm. they got brought back in the nineties. I think it was one of the, it was, I think it was like the first thing Jeff Loeb and Tim Sale did. And the premise was the challenges of the unknown with these adventuring heroes from the 1950s who disappeared and then reappear in the present day. <laughs> Fair enough, then. <laughs> but I mean, like that, for me, that preserves what's good about the characters without having to, you know, go through the problems of remaking them. So, like, you can have Reed Richards as like a sort of 1940s patriarch, and you can have Ben Grimm as a World War II veteran. And you can have Johnny Storm as like a 50s greaser or whatever. And, you know, you keep though that character dynamic, but then you also get to evolve them with some sort of modern commentary. So like Sue in particular would be able to find herself and, you know, expand her horizons uh, without, you know, you get to do that without wrecking the characters, basically. You get you you know you have the classic Fantastic Four, but also acknowledge that maybe they're a bit out of date, and there are things you can do to bring them up to date. So yeah, that's how I'll yeah. do it. Yeah, I do wonder the one thing that we're we're gonna have to think about as well is to if we want to give if we want to get Fox to give Marvel the Fantastic Four, they're going to have to give something in return. All of the Inhumans. You can have yeah. all. It it I mean, mean that the MCU would kind of have to give up the potential of using Miss Marvel and people like that, but it might be worth it. Okay, well, I mean, I think I'm gonna have to give Seb the win uh, because <laughs> he was I very think enthusiastic. He might cry. <laughs> and maybe, maybe James, we dig out these characters that um, Seb was talking about from the <laughs> challenge of the Fantastic Four. The only yeah, the only we'll thing get... I know about the challenges of the unknown is that when Marvel and DC did Amalgam, they were the challenge of the fantastic. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but just just look up a picture of them. They look exactly like the. the fantastic <laughs> four. Uh, okay, well, um, that is it for this week's podcast. If you're enjoying the show, then please do subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Player FM. Or your your podcast podcast app app of choice. choice. (laughs) (laughs) And you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash cinematic universe. You can find more episodes of the show at cinematicmultiverse.com. You can get in touch via Facebook on Twitter at CU underscore podcast. Or you can send us an email to cinematicuniversepod at gmail.com. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next week. Goodbye. Goodbye. You're missing the point. There's no throne. There's no version of this where you come out on top. Maybe your army comes and maybe it's too much for us, but it's all on you. Because if we can't protect the Earth, you can be damn well sure we'll avenge it. Cinematic Universe returns in two weeks' time with the Avengers. Want truly hydrated skin? Meet Osea's Body Care Breakthrough Hyaluronic Body Serum. It's clinically proven to increase hydration by 161%. It's lightweight, fast-absorbing, and delivers 24 hours of hydration for silky smooth skin without any sticky afterfeel. 
Treat your skin to clean vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order with code SUMMER at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com code SUMMER. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.